chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, God's word says, But I say to you, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Well, this morning we come to a passage that is commonly declared to be the core message of Jesus. And it's one that many people say, well, I don't believe with everything the Bible says. I don't necessarily think Jesus was the Son of God. But one thing I love, I love Jesus' message of love. And we hear, if we could only follow this ethic, then this world would be a better place. And so this morning we come to this great passage where Jesus commands us to love But the more I thought about it this week, the more I wondered, do we really love Jesus' ethic, his command to love? You know, we sing and write about how wonderful love is. It's filled in our poems and our songs. And even this week, it's going to be Valentine's Day. But yet, if you look by not just what people say, but what we do, there's a lot of hate in our society. We're told hate is maybe the biggest problem in our society. We've even labeled and deemed some crimes hate crimes. You know, if you go online, you don't have to read long before you hear and see really strong, angry, bitter words against other people. We have kind of a veneer of social politeness, but once we get away from people we disagree with, the type of language and the way we speak of others can often be very unloving. In fact, I wonder, as we look at this, do we even actually understand Jesus' ethic of love? Do we understand where it comes from? Because, as we'll see, this isn't just some abstract moral code. This is actually a reflection of God's character to us. And to understand Jesus' message, I think we need to see four things. If you have a bulletin, this is on the back. In verses 27 and 28, we need to see Jesus' call to love. And then in verses 29 to 31... Jesus gives us examples of this love. But then Jesus points out in verses 32 through 34, the third point, there's actually cheap imitations of this love. They look like it, but Jesus says, no, that's not actually what I'm saying is this love. And then lastly, Jesus gives us motivations to love. But if you look down and remember from last week, verses 20 through 26, Jesus was teaching about the blessed life in the cursed life. And look down again at verse 22 of chapter 6. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then he goes and Jesus talks about the woes. And so he's been talking about being persecuted for him. 
And I think he's in verse 27 saying, so how should you respond to these people who hate you, who say all kinds of things against you falsely? Well, verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And so Jesus here is responding, and he's going to give them four ways they should respond to this hate against them. And this very first one is love your enemies. But this is not something that's natural for any of us to do. Our instinct is to hate those who hate us. You may have heard of Christopher Hitchens. He's no longer alive, but he was an author made famous for his book, God is Not Great. And as you can probably tell by the title, he was a very open atheist and critic of religion. Well, in 2011, he and a pastor, Doug Wilson, had a series of debates around the country. It's recorded. You can watch them if you want. But in one of the debates, this is what Christopher Hitchens said about this command of Jesus. He said, I'm not going to love them. You go love them if you want. Don't love them on my behalf. I'll get on with killing them, destroying them, erasing them. And you can love them. But the idea that you ought to love them, your enemies, is not a moral idea at all. It's a wicked idea. Well, Hitchens, I think, is speaking very honestly. For this command of Jesus, if we weren't in church, would actually seem quite ridiculous. I mean, we can all verbally say, oh yes, this is wonderful, we love this, and then go out and someone cuts you off as you're leaving the parking lot, and you're probably not going to be saying, well, God bless them. We give lip service to how wonderful this is, but our actions say, no, another ethic should be guiding my life. Because Jesus here is calling for love that is completely not natural. It is supernatural. It's only something that God has and could give to us. You see, Jesus is claiming this is the type of love God has for us. And we need to follow that love. You know, Jesus came in love because the Father sent him to take the punishment we deserve for rebelling against him. The wages of sin is death. And yet Jesus came and took that death we deserved. Paul describes this in Romans 5 and 8 by saying, God shows this love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It then goes on and says in verse 10 of Romans 5, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And so love for those who hate you is really the type of love God has for us. Now notice this is a call for us to love our enemies. And this should pull us away from our fearful tendencies of isolation and seclusion. Ooh, the world's getting bad. People are hating Christians more and more. We need to retreat away, we think. But Jesus says, no. You need to do the opposite. You need to go and seek them out and do them good. And that's Jesus' second command in the middle of verse 27. He says, do good to the ones who hate you. Now, love in our day has been reduced to merely accepting someone or tolerating them. And it's basically a passive willingness that I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to let you live your life. I'm not going to say anything negative about you. But Jesus' call to love is far more encompassing. It's not just merely passive, benevolent thoughts towards others. It's active, loving deeds. At the beginning of the service, I mentioned the book by Richard Wormbrand, Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor in Romania, and in 1945, communist Russia overtook the country. But that did not stop him from preaching the gospel. For the next 13 out of 18 years, he was in prison, 
with many other Christians, where they were put in solitary confinement, sometimes for years, where they were given meager rations, and all this just for their trust in Christ. Well, finally, in 1963, some foreign Christians paid the communist government to release him out of the country, and he wrote about all this in his book. And in it, he tells that at times, sometimes the communist would arrest their own people. Communism is not the wonderful, peace-loving thing you might hear sometimes. Well, then the torturers are now prisoners with those who they had tortured. Well, you can imagine how that will go for the torturers or former torturers. But Wormbrand writes, While the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I've seen Christians giving away their last slice of bread and medicine which would save their lives to a sick communist torturer who is now a fellow prisoner. You know, there could be no more tangible expression from a human of doing good to those who hate you. Well, third, Jesus goes on in verse 28, Bless those who curse you. Thus, this is not just Jesus saying, okay, through gritted teeth, you go out, you do good to people, but the whole time, oh, I really hate these people. Oh, I wish, oh, I wish God would curse them. No, we don't just do good with our actions, but with our words, we're to do good to them. I don't know about you, but growing up, my parents would make me, if I'd been in a fight with one of my brothers, hug afterwards. I always felt like it was a good thing, because you actually, it's hard to hug someone you're angry with. But even still, you can... Maybe giving some firm pats on the back, like, oh, well, I'll do this, but I'm still mad. No, God's love is not just, I'm going through the motions, I'm just doing you good deeds, because that's what i got to do. Words of blessing come flowing out from our lips, love in word and deed. Now, it's important to note here that in love, we may need to warn people of their sin. Look again at verses 24 through 26. Jesus four times gives woes, warnings to people. Look, if you continue down this path, you're on the path of destruction. So love for people should not be taken, as many as our culture do, to say, well, that just means accepting everyone, saying there's nothing wrong. Well, Jesus, in his own words, says that's not the case. And in a few verses, we're going to see he calls people sinners. And so like Jesus, we need to love others, even when we sometimes have to say, Harsh things. Not in a harsh way. In a loving, gentle, caring way. Because like Christ, we want to love them. Well, fourth in the middle of verse 28, Jesus says, Pray for the ones who mistreat you or abuse you. Well, Jesus practiced what he preached. You can read in Luke 23, As he hung on the cross, he prayed to his Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His own disciples followed this, because Stephen, the early deacon in the church, when he was arrested and put on trial, and they were killing him, it says in Acts 7:60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." So not only are we to just do good to them, we're to bless them. And so Jesus wants to flush this out, help us understand it. So in verses 29 through 31, our second point, he gives examples of this love. So verse 29, he says, "To the one who strikes you upon the cheek." Provide also the other. Now as we examine these examples, there's two errors we can make. One error is to read them literalistically. Now we should interpret the Bible the way we do almost any book. And that is we take it at face value. We take it literally. But 
we can turn into literalistic interpretations when we don't account for the fact for metaphors, different genres, different symbolisms, or clear hyperbole. Now, we know that Jesus didn't literally mean when you get punched off of the other one, because in John 18, 22, Jesus was struck on the cheek. And what did he do? He said, why did you do that? He didn't go, well, here, let me give you the other one too. You know, he was not literalistically saying, at least not in his actions, hey, just keep getting punched back and forth and then give him the other and then turn back the other way and let him get him that one real good. He wasn't saying that the point behind all this is, do you want revenge? He's tying from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take revenge. You know, we want personal vengeance. We want them to get back worse than what they gave to us. Paul writes about this in Romans 12, 19 through 21. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So thus, rather than bearing grudges, rather than being quick to retaliate, being hasty to sue, we're always asserting our rights, we need to be willing and open to personal harm so we can do others good. So one error we can make is interpreting these literalistically, but then we can go to the other extreme and realize that all of these have some slight hyperbole and go, oh, I'm glad Jesus didn't actually mean that stuff because that sounds pretty radical. No, this is a radical message. This type of love is very extreme. And so don't read this and think, oh, well, he didn't really mean it. No, he meant it. But we have to realize that so many people have abused this on both ways. Well, this is saying you should never have national defense. It's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the context. Jesus is saying you can't defend yourself. Well, here, remember the context. He's talking about what do you do when people are persecuting you for the name of Christ? And so... We need to live in this tension where we don't take it literalistically, but we also don't explain it away and then continue to live in the forms of natural love rather than supernatural. Well, second, Jesus adds to this, from the one who takes your garments, also do not forbid the tunic. You know, the context is having something forcefully taken from you, stolen from you. And rather than seeking revenge and getting them back, if this happened for Christ's sake, we should keep coming back. Some of y'all may remember about a year ago, Joshua and Naomi Smith came. They're friends of mine, ours, and they're missionaries in Mexico. And there was a woman in their church who became a Christian, Maria. And one day she was going to work, and as she was going, she heard someone running up behind her, and the man stumbled and fell. And when she turned around to help him up, she realized there was a knife next to him. And she realized what the man was about to do. And so she did the logical thing that any gospel believer would do. She helped him up. She opened her purse, gave him 200 pesos, and then told him about how God calls us in Ephesians 4.28 to no longer steal, but to give and share with those in need. Well, the man was a little startled, needless to say, and a week later he ran up again. But this time he gave the 200 pesos back. And let her know that he'd taken a job. Now, Maria could have screamed for help. And it's not always wrong to do so. Maria could have hit him with her purse. 
And that wouldn't necessarily have been wrong. However, Maria knew that this man needed something way more than money. She's living out the principle of, if someone comes to take from you, give. Now again, does that mean every time you have to do that? No. But if we're never willing to do that, are we really following what the Lord says? Well, third, Jesus says, give to the ones who ask of you. Again, Jesus, we're told, 2 Thessalonians 2, that if someone will not work in the church, we shouldn't continue to give them aid. So if we took this literalistically, we'd have to break that command. Well, no, if someone has a need, we should be generous and willing to share. That we don't close our hearts to them. And if we're honest, it's very easy to close our hearts and say, well, I gave a little bit. My conscience is now clear. But we should be like the man that Psalm 37, 21 talks about. It says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. You and your charitable giving, not just with your money, but with your time, your emotions, do you err on the side of being too cautious or being too generous? You know, I think most of us, well, we, we don't want them to abuse it. Well, obviously we shouldn't lead people to being enabling their bad behavior, but we should err on the side of loving, being generous. What if they need ongoing care? Are you willing to one time go do something? Check. I help them. Whew, done. Ha. Jesus says, tell people, glad I did that. Or will you provide the hard, ongoing care? You know, loving people, giving them, doing them good is not a periodic event that you can check off the list. It's a lifestyle that knows of needs and seeks how to fill them. Well, fourth, Jesus commands from the one who takes your things, do not demand or ask for them back again. And Jesus' examples here are showing the all-encompassing nature of this. We must be willing to take abuse, to give our clothes, to give our money, give our goods, give our time for His name. And so this was a challenge as I read these this week. Am I more committed to getting my stuff back than I am for caring for people? Am I more driven by my rights than by love? Are there times that giving up my rights might be an opportunity for the gospel? Now, at times, yes, Paul gave up his rights. And then other times, Paul stood and said, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. So it's not one or the other. But for each time, for Paul, it wasn't personal vindication. It wasn't vengeance. That's the point. It was what will cause the gospel to go forth. Well, Jesus then gives famous words, sometimes referred to as the golden rule. Verse 31. Just as you wish that men would do to you, you do likewise to them. Now, Jesus was not the first to give words like this. If you read other people, you can find Greek scholars, you can find Hebrew scholars, you can even find Chinese writers who said this. Confucius wrote, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. But you may have noticed a slight change from what Confucius said and what Jesus said. Confucius is, is negative. If you don't want that done to you, don't do it to others. And that's really what our society says today. That's love. Don't be doing stuff to others you don't want it done to you. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not love. Listen to what I say. Love is if you would want something positively done to you, then you need to go and do that for others. It's not a passive avoiding things. It's an active going out and doing 
things. You know, love is not merely the absence of hate or doing harm. Love positively seeks the good of others in word, deed, and thought. And so Jesus' call to love extends far beyond what humans might deem moral or possible. For it's not self-serving at all. But the problem is, we are so self-focused that we find this very hard to do. We don't consider the needs of others. We're so busy in pursuing what we want that people are either in our way or we use them to get what we want. And Jesus is trying to reorient us by saying, just as you wish that men would do to you, you do likewise to them. But again, as we started out at the beginning, many people say, oh, I love this message. This is wonderful. And I'm a fairly loving person. But Jesus now gives three cheap imitations of love. Some of you have bought rings for your soon-to-be fiancé and now wife. And as you know, diamond rings can be quite expensive. However, you can go and buy a cubic zirconia for quite a fraction of the cost. Now, you might be very impressed with your frugalness, your ability to get a good-looking deal that looks just basically the same, but I'm pretty sure your fiancé will not be as impressed when they realize you got the imitation of the real thing. And here, people are going to present all these imitations of love, and Jesus is going to go, that's really not that impressive. That's not what I'm talking about. And the first one is, Jesus says in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? He says, even sinners do that. You don't need to have been saved by grace. You don't need the Holy Spirit in you to love people who love you. That's really the most ordinary thing in the world. That's what we all do. And yet, as you talk to many people and you say, are you a loving person? You go, oh yeah, I love my family. I love, I love the people who are in my club. Well, yes, of course. But Jesus says, that, that, that's not the type of, that's not what I'm talking about. That's all well and good in its own right, but that's not the type of love I'm telling you about, Jesus says. Well, Jesus then goes on, verse 33, well, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And each time, Jesus is using the same pattern. He says, look, sinners do the same. This is just merely, well, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's a self-focused mentality for it has to get in order to give. But Jesus calls us to give even to people who will never give us back in return. Well, third in verse 34, Jesus says, If you lend from whom you hope to receive, what benefit is that to you? Again, you could go down to any local bank. If you have good credit, they're going to give it to you. It's not because they're loving. They just they know they're going to get it back. So Jesus says, your love's no better than the local bank, if that's all you got. You need more than that. We need giving to people who we actually think they'll probably never give it back to us. Jesus expresses this type of giving in Luke 14, 12-14 by saying, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus' words here are deeply challenging. We are so quick to say, oh, I'm loving. I love my family. And again, Jesus says, that's that's not what I'm talking about. Oh, yes, Jesus, I love. I never harm anyone. Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. 
Jesus said, you don't understand the type of love I'm talking about. Love is not avoiding harming people. It's doing them, even those who it's not natural to do it for. And this is why I wonder, do we really love Jesus' ethic of love? Or do we just love this veneer of being nice, having social courtesies, and speaking positive affirmations, and building everyone's self-esteem? And yet, when we do that, sadly, we're undercutting the motivation for love, the love Jesus talks about. And even in churches, I see this. As we seek to build one another up through self-affirmation, through stand up for your rights, we actually undercut what Jesus is saying. You know, periodically, I see Christians posting things like this. It says, respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. That's the spirit of the age. And yet, if Jesus had that motto, respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy, he would have never gone to the cross. It didn't serve him in one iota. It served us. It didn't make him grow. It killed him. And it definitely did not make him happy. Now, yes, it brought eternal happiness for us. But none of the things that our society says should impel us to do something or stop something would have led Jesus to the cross. And yet that type of love that Jesus has is the type of love that he is calling us to. And it's only when we see that that's the type of love that Christ has that we'll be motivated to stick it out in the bad relationships. And that really leads to the last point, verses 35 and 36, the motivation the motivations to love. In verse 35, Jesus kind of recaps everything he's said so far. Love your enemies, do them good, lend hoping for nothing. And then he gives two positive motivations for doing this. First, he says, your reward or wages will be full. Now, the context is still Jesus talking to his disciples. So this is not, well, how do you become disciples? But how does God reward his faithful disciples you know there's no way to consistently live this out if we think this is all there is jesus is saying look this is as you follow me as a disciple and know that i am the way the truth and the life we need to know that god sees rewards and will act justly you know the ethic of today is you know you should do what's right because you know karma it'll it'll get you well besides the fact that karma is a bad replacement for grace, it's just not true. In this earth, some people never get punished for the bad things they do. And some people do some good things and they're never rewarded on this earth. So we have to realize that we have to look beyond any such thing as karma and look to Christ. Now, while he's not calling us to seek rewards from men, notice he is telling us to seek rewards, heavenly rewards. You probably heard this quote from C.S. Lewis, and though it's long, it's really worth reflecting on because it's talking about the type of love we should have and the seeking of reward. C.S. Lewis writes, If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative ideal of unselfishness 
carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without of them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end of itself, in and of itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our cross in order to follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Like here, Jesus is saying, pursue your reward. Lewis goes on. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that it's a bad thing to desire one's own good and earnestly hope for enjoyment, it is because it has crept in from the teachings of Immanuel Kant and the ancient Stoics. Certainly, it has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered us. We are far too easily pleased. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. So know that when you love your enemies, when you do good, and when you lend hoping for nothing in return, God promises you a reward. So make the costly sacrifice now, knowing that something much better is to come. But Jesus adds another motivation to this. And I would argue a stronger one, because second, he says, you will be the sons of the Most High, for he also is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Now, when Jesus says you will be sons of the Most High, what does he mean? Does he mean you will become sons of the Most High? Well, if he was meaning that, he would be contradicting everything else he says, and he would be ignoring the context. Here he's talking to people who are already his disciples, who are already the sons of God. Rather, he's saying, you will be revealed to be the sons of the Most High. You've probably heard these expressions. Like father, like son. They have a strong family resemblance. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And each one of those is saying family traits are passed on. In fact, it's impossible to avoid them. If you were here the Sunday after Christmas, or the Sunday before Christmas, actually, you would have heard Drew Pond preach here from the pulpit. And as I sat there and watched and listened, I thought, that's Keith's son. Facial expressions were the same. Mannerisms were the same. Even some of the wording was the same. And if you knew Keith, you'd go, that is Keith's son. And God's children are revealed, not made by acting like their father. In this case, we're being shown that he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Now, if you look up the Greek word for evil, you'll actually find that the meaning is evil. Jesus did not believe in the innate goodness of man. Jesus says people are evil. And so we have to realize as people say, oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount, it's wonderful. Have you read it? Jesus says a lot of things that I'm pretty sure you would disagree with. He calls people evil. He calls me evil. 
You know, his consistent teaching was that humans rebelled against God and were enemies of God and thus evil. Now, the point, of course, is not that we're as wicked as we possibly can be. That's not the case at all. But that we each want to go our own way. That we want to say, I'm going to rule my life, not God. And Jesus is clear that that is evil. Yet the very fact that we are evil shows the depth of his love. He came in love for us while we were still his enemies. And it's that same love to which he now calls us that we are to emulate. Now this is really important because you can be talking to someone or you get on a debate online and all of a sudden they'll say, well, you know, I don't really believe that Jesus was the son of God and he died so you wouldn't go to hell. But you know what? As long as we want to follow the ethic of love, that's all that matters, isn't it? Well, while that's a common sentiment, I would argue and am arguing that actually won't last because we'll really end up where Hitchens did and say that's actually immoral. You know, if we have this platitudinous love those who love you, well, yeah, sure, but you don't need Jesus. Kermit the Frog can inspire you to that type of love. To have the type of love where you love your enemies, where you're loving those people who are doing evil to you, then you need to know that there was an eternal God who sent his son to die for evil people like you. That's the only thing that will motivate us to Jesus' ethic of love. Not this generic, let's all feel good and sing kumbaya together. It's while we know that he demonstrated his love love for us while we're still enemies, he died for us, that we can continue to love those who are our enemies. And so Jesus here is not putting forward for us some abstract moral code written somewhere in the universe that you can go look up and even judge God by. No, he's saying, you need to live like me. That's where you get morals from God's character. This is how God acts. God loves his enemies. God does good to those who hate him. God is kind to the ungrateful. He doesn't say, we'll see if I ever help you out again, you ungrateful jerk. He continues to give rain and health and joy to a society that hates him. And then Jesus says, we get the immense privilege to imitate this, to imitate him in this world. You know, could there be any greater motivation than that we get to be a living picture of God to the world around us? The saying is true. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You know, we watch a baking show and then we feel inspired to go break. We watch the Olympics and then all of a sudden we want to go skating across ice. We're doing triple sow cows. We're falling on our faces. We try to do triple sow cows in the living room. We see something great and we want to emulate it. We get to see and love and adore the love of God shown in Jesus Christ to enemies. And then we get the privilege to go do that for others. And I really wrestled with the sermon because one, it's really counter to me. And two, I think sermons like this often seem like a big beat down of a sermon. Oh boy, yep, I knew this was in the Bible. Okay. Got to go love that person. All right, we're going to sing the last song. Probably going to tell me to love. I'm going to go out. I'm going to love people this week. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to psych myself up. You'll psych yourself up. You'll go home. And you'll walk in the house. And your sibling is going to break that toy that you've told them a million times not to touch. And as you clench your fist, you pray, Lord, thank you for giving me this opportunity to let them turn the other cheek. All you want to do is hurt them. You don't want to bless them. 
And if all you get from this is, all right, Jesus is preaching some really good morals. We need to go out and do this. You'll never do this. This is not a moralistic message. This is a message about the amazing love of God and Christ for enemies. And if you leave, okay, I'm going to love my enemies more. I can do it. I'm going to grip my teeth this week. You will fail. What you need is to confess, I'm that enemy of God that Jesus is talking about. In myself, actually, I have no desire to love anyone who cuts me off, who does me wrong. And yet, God says, that's what's evil in me. And so I need to cry out and ask for His help. You know, it's only as we delight in Him. It's only that we realize that He doesn't say to us, well, you are ungrateful to me. Just talk to the hand. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. But instead, He says, I'll let my hands be pierced for you. That then we go, he did that for me? Well, I can do that for her. Not because I'm gritting my teeth, but because I'm in awe of who this God is. You know, this is really Jesus just applying verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. It's as we admit, God, I can't do the very things you do. Uh, That's not in me at all. I need you I need to see you to be who you call me to be, to be a reflection of you, that we can do this. Again, this is not a natural type of love. It is super natural and can only be achieved by God working in us as we're humble before him. Let me conclude with one of the stories of Corrie Ten Boom. Many of you have heard of her. She lived in Nazi-occupied Holland during World War II. As she and her family sought to be faithful to God, protect Jews and other people who the Nazis were arresting and sending to concentration camps, she was eventually caught. She was arrested and she was sent to the very camps from which she was trying to deliver people. Well, as her whole family was arrested, her father died in prison, alone in a prison hospital. And she and her sister Betsy had to work in these camps. And then one day, they found out the name of the man who had caused them to be arrested, John Vogel. And Corey then writes in her book, The Hiding Place, flames of fire seemed to leap around that name in my heart. I thought of father's final hours, alone and confused in a hospital quarter, of the underground work so abruptly halted, and I knew if that if Jan Vogel stood in front of me, I could kill him. And naturally, we all feel the same way. That's right. He deserves it. He deserves to die. And Corey, in her bitterness, she went on and she was getting more bitter each day. And one restless night, she turned to her sister Betsy and said, Betsy, don't you feel anything about Jan Vogel? Doesn't it bother you? And then she says, Betsy replies, Oh, yes, Corey, terribly. I've felt for him ever since I knew. And pray for him. Whatever his name comes to my mind, how dreadfully he must be suffering. Him suffering? We're the ones in prison cots and concentration camps. But Corey then writes, For a long time I lay silent. Once again I had the feeling that this sister with whom I'd spent all my life belonged somehow to another order of beings. Wasn't she telling me in her gentle way that I was as guilty as Jan Vogel? Didn't he and I stand together before an all-seeing God, convicted of the same sin of murder? For I had murdered him with my heart and with my tongue. And so, while the love of Betsy is incredible, 
that she could have compassion and pray. And then Corey led to me pray for this person who led to them because they did good going to concentration camps. It actually pales in the imitation that Jesus had for us. Because Corey and Betsy didn't die for Jan Vogel, their enemy. Jesus came and died for his enemies. He is another order of beings. And yet the fact that our love is pale imitation of God's, it's fine. Because the goal is not for people to look at our love. It's for them to look at our love and see a reflection of his love. That's what the goal is. For them to gaze at Christ, the perfect and real image of God that's been given to us. So to the degree you see and cherish and trust his love, it will be reflected in your life. Do we love Jesus' ethic? To love it, we must love him and realize we only do that because he first loved us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, Hitchens is right. This would be a horribly cruel thing for Jesus to say if you didn't exist. And yet you in love came for enemies. Lord, this is not natural to us. But we ask that supernaturally you would give us eyes to see your great love. And that it, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our everyday shopping and interacting with people, we would be a pale reflection of this type of love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.